0: Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: What you're seeing in this short term in terms of how the U.S. is engaging, it's not where we'll end up. There are many voices that are going to push us to work with Europe and work with other countries and be part of the innovations that will bring this to an end.
2: Hello, and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. In 2015, I had this conversation with Bill Gates I think about all the time. I asked him, what was he most afraid of? I mean, every year through his foundation, he would release his notes about how much better the world was getting. And he was right. I mean, malnutrition was down, child mortality was down. But what kept him up at night if he was so optimistic about where we were going? And the answer he gave me then was respiratory flus. He said, if you look at a death chart of the 20th century, you would know World War One is there and you would be able to pick out World War II and you would see in between them a spike as big as World War II, and most people would say, what the hell is that? And that was the Spanish flu. And that if you imagine something like the Spanish flu in our globalized economy, oh God, could that be bad? And I've thought about that conversation um, for a long time, and now we are living in at least a version of it. Recently, Gates, who's been trying to first get the world ready for something like this, although not as successfully as he wishes he did, and now is trying to spend money and convene stakeholders and push forward the science to get us out of this as quickly as we can, wrote a fascinating piece called The First Modern Pandemic, trying to explain what we know about this virus, what we know that could treat it, and what we need to do to get ourselves safely out of it, and particularly what we need to innovate and build to get out of it. So we sat down on Friday to talk through not just coronavirus, but to talk through what the world could look like after, in the same way that I asked him then what was he afraid of? I wanted to ask him now, what is he hopeful about? What does he hope for? And it was an interesting conversation. We also talked a bit about the political responses around the world, what we still don't know and wish we did, how to make decisions under this kind of uncertainty, and what it's like for him being at the center of some really quite vicious conspiracy theories. As always, my email is Kleinshow at vox.com, but here is Bill Gates. On February 28th, you wrote that COVID-19 has started behaving a lot like the once-in-a-century pathogen we've been worried about. About two months has passed. We've learned a lot. Has what we've learned since then made you more or less worried?
1: Well, sadly, the disease got into exponential growth in a lot of Europe and the United States. And so the toll there is greater than I would have expected. You know, we're learning about how to do testing well. A lot of countries got that right and did it very early on. In the US, even the numbers overstate where we are because we're not prioritizing the right people, we're not getting results back in a timely fashion. So it's been a mixed bag, I would say. You know, the fact that social isolation really knocks the numbers down, that's good news. But of course, that comes at an incredible price.
2: Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask on that is when we spoke in the past, you talked a lot about a disease model you ran that found that a 1918-like influenza could kill 33 million people worldwide in six months. We don't look to be hitting that death toll. So do we think that's because this is not as lethal as what we saw in 1918 or not as contagious or because we as a global community are doing a better job with social distancing and isolation? isolation the models might have predicted?
1: Well, we don't really know what's going to happen in developing countries where most of the world population lives. The actual reported cases out of those countries is pretty small to date. But unless there's some magical factor, the likelihood that the vast majority of of the deaths will be there uh, is very high. It's harder for them to socially isolate. You know, they need to get food. There isn't this ability to do what we've done. So I think it's premature to predict the eventual death toll. In the rich countries, yes, we took the idea of the widespread epidemic that could have had a a high death rate, and we did the social isolation. So only a few percent of the population had symptomatic disease. So on the developing countries question, if you had asked me a month ago,
2: I expected by now and feared by now that Brazil would be a disaster, that South Africa, with its very heavily immunocompromised population, would be a disaster, that you would see India in terrible shape. So far, it's not been as bad as I think a lot of people worried it would be. Why do you think that is?
1: That to me is the most mysterious thing. And, you know, I hope there's some reason other than that they're just not testing enough people. People are afraid to seek out testing. The international travelers that spread the disease go into those cities less. The people who do world travel are somewhat separated from the bulk of the population, so that diffusion, you know, through your worker that lives in the slum may have taken an extra month or two. They do have a better age structure, but they have more air pollution, uh, which is associated with very bad outcomes, lots of HIV, lots of malnutrition. Weirdly, there's places like, you know, one city in Ecuador that's experiencing the exponential growth. And, you know, so I'm looking up, do they have a subway in Guaquil? You know, I don't know much about it. There have been different things, you know, New York and London are even worse than just pure density measures would predict, or even the international travel would predict for those things. So, you know, slowly but surely, we're saying, okay, why meat packing plants? Why certain activities lead to these almost super spreading type events? This,
2: to me, is the part that is very tricky to work through, very tricky to report on. I mean, you're a precise guy. You think logically. The pieces of this disease don't quite seem to fit together to me. Why New York City looks like it does, but SF looks like it does. And then why Florida, which closed late, doesn't look as bad as I would have expected, given its age structure and given the political leadership we had there, some of the developing countries' issues. It feels to me like there are variables here that we are not seeing or we are not measuring correctly. And I don't quite know when we're going to get a handle
1: on them. You know, just take the flu, which has been around for a long time. You know, Spanish flu, 1957 epidemic, you know, kills on average 40,000 people every year. The amount we don't know about the flu is amazing. I was actually doing a big flu study in Seattle over the last couple of years. And that was the first detection in the U.S. of community spread of coronavirus They went and ran the screen, even though they didn't have permission to do it, and sadly came up and saw that there were people who had never been anywhere outside the country that were infecting other people. Now we see that in California that was there, but they didn't have the Seattle flu study to see that. So that really rang alarm bells when that happened. We don't understand why flu is seasonal. You know, so it's such a profound thing that there's this three-month period where it's very active and then almost nine months where you have a hard time finding it uh, depending on which hemisphere you're in. So the infectious disease hasn't gotten the depth of, of learning that, you know, say cancer or heart disease has because it's largely gone from rich countries that drive those scientific priorities. And that, you know, that's a big part of our foundation is try and get the work, a little bit of work on the things that kill most of the people, including the remaining infectious disease burden. So it's not that stunning to me. And I do think in a few months, you know, this idea of do asymptomatics infect, you know, why is the tox so low and yet there's no accumulation of CO2? This is a very novel syndrome that we're facing here. And as we learn about that, it'll allow us to target these therapeutic explorations that were going down in a very smart way.
2: One thing I appreciated about your new paper is you have a section on what we don't know. What are the big things you wish we knew that we currently simply
1: don't? Well, the seasonality and the weather effects, it's looking more and more like indoor infection is a dramatic part of the infection. And that even the way air circulation works in closed spaces like subways really works against you pretty dramatically. You know, the model of infection are asymptomatics just slightly being exposed and therefore they're not in the chain of infection very much. The best study on that in Singapore shows about 6%, but other people have done the studies different ways. that give, I think, unrealistically high numbers. We don't know the human immune response yet, and that'll be very important because if it's a very weak response, then you're not protected from a second infection. I don't think that's likely, but until we actually are looking at this blood plasma to see what the titers of the antibodies are, not this binary serology thing that at this point is not helpful, but a real quantitative measure that we're gonna do to get these donors to take plasma or or concentrate it further, that's gonna give us that insight into it. So who, location, you know, we're in very much in uncharted territory. And actually the best work, you know, isn't people that the government funds, it's people who've been funded more by philanthropy, and at least they're there, like international health metrics. Everybody criticizes the fact that, oh, they couldn't predict it perfectly, but they in particular, at terms of modeling this peak, did a fantastic job. To, to
2: go back to what you just said about the binary serological tests, we've seen some of these in Santa Clara, in LA County. Um, for those not that familiar with this debate, what they found is they think that we've had much higher prevalence of the disease and a much lower lethality rate. Why don't you think those studies are reliable or helpful?
1: Because the false positive rate on that serology test is very, very high. And when you have ninety-eight percent who certainly aren't infected, you know, just the the way the statistics works, a tiny, tiny lack of specificity. That is. False positives completely overwhelms the real data. So that study would say there's like ten times as many people who've been exposed as have shown symptoms. Most things like you know Diamond Princess, Singapore, where you you go through the viral loads and look at that, show more like a two to three times. And and that will get resolved. We we have quantitative serological tests that are being applied at the population level in about five different countries, including some work that I'm sponsoring. So. We'll get to the bottom of that. It would be better if more people have been exposed, if that's associated with immunity, but that's also unknown. How should
2: policymakers, and even for that matter, individuals, think about making good decisions given just how much uncertainty there is here?
1: Well, there are people who understand the disease dynamics. Historically, the U.S. expertise is down in the CDC, you know, not up in in the White House, you know, it's those experts working with the people a lot in academia, or people like our foundation who think about infectious disease all the time. So the idea of, okay, how do you design a testing system? If we'd done the germ games, we would have realized, wow, the number of tests is way, way less than the demand. Okay, what are the limiting factors? Even this thing we did to prove that you can self-swab You know, why wasn't that done five years ago? It's the health worker who jams that thing in the back of your throat. They're infecting themselves. They have to change their protective equipment. And that, you know, is a completely unnecessary thing. So the the naivete going into this thing because there was no rehearsal continually surprises me. And you have to pick a few people Who have deep scientific knowledge and empower them to, you know, okay, what is the testing regime for this country?
2: I was looking back at a piece you published, I think it was in 2018, about preparing for pandemics and doing innovation around pandemics. And a point you made there that I thought was uh, quite telling is that we are constantly rehearsing for war against an enemy of another country, right? We're constantly rehearsing as part of NATO or US military war games, Pandemics are a well-known thing. They've happened throughout history. We knew one was going to come eventually, and we were not doing these rehearsals. Why do you think it is that we are so much more focused on threats from each other than threats that come from nature?
1: Well, I think part of it is that the minor epidemics we had really didn't hit the U.S. So if you look at the Asian countries that did well, many of them wrote down, you know, step one identify all PCR machines. Step two, get supplies for PCR machines. You know, we haven't done that in a reasonable way today, even though we have more machines per capita than anybody else. But places like Taiwan or South Korea, because they were hit with MERS or SARS, SARS in Taiwan's case, MERS for South Korea, they had the playbook. They opened the playbook and they went through those steps and, you know, it's only saved them 10% of GDP and, you know, immense human suffering that they took respiratory disease in a serious way. And so the fact that it hasn't been here in this country for so long allowed us to not think about it as a priority. And, you know, I think back, how could I have been louder, more articulate? I wish you know, I'd been more successful in getting these investments made in advance. Very little was done, CEPI was created, but the US, you know, didn't get involved in that. That was uh, welcome Prostar foundation in three or four countries that got a modest sum of money to work on vaccine platforms. Let's
2: get into actually vaccine platforms. And, and let me start here, in the essay you released the other day, you talk about how we don't just need policy to reopen, there are innovations we need, but don't have. What are some of the innovations short of vaccines before we get up to vaccines?
1: Well, there's just the three categories. There's scaling up testing, you know, which if you have a miraculous level, you know, you might want to test everyone before they went on a cruise ship or went into a theme park or came to work in a, a warehouse. You know, we're a factor of a thousand away from that, and we can't let the finite capacity go to that because we have higher priorities. So testing is the first big category. And I'd sort of put contact tracing into that because it's all one regime for reducing infection. Then you have the therapies or drugs. And then finally, you have the vaccine. So those are the three buckets, unless you say, okay, policy innovation is kind of its own overlaying piece of this.
2: Well, let's start then with testing. Um, what, in your view, has stopped us from standing up a more capable testing regime? For a bit, it seemed like it was lack of focus. Maybe that's still part of it, but there are also shortages in things like swabs and reagents. I mean, what what is between us and
1: the kind of regime you wish we had? Well, the swabbing piece, you know, we're showing to the FDA that basically any swab works. You can swab yourself, put it in a plastic bag, you know, send it back. As long as it gets the machine in a reasonable time frame. it can be at room temperature. So the swabbing thing, we should have figured out that because it shouldn't be a limiting factor. The actual machines, there are ways of running them that can make it faster. So we're exploring those that could make a huge difference. But if you just look at who got access and were the machines being used effectively, even today, we're not like other countries, you know, enumerating which ones still have idle capacity and making sure that the right things are are fed into that. We're also not giving back quantitative values, but I won't get into that. We're just still giving yes, no, which is not as informative. So, you know, there are model countries and is this a federal thing? Well, the PCR machines, some states have very few, some states have a lot. This is a fairly technical thing. You know, they briefly involved FEMA, but they You know, they didn't have the background for this.
2: I want to go back to the swabs for a minute. I heard you give an interview with Ted, I think it was now about a month ago, where you were talking about giving the FDA that information that you could just do the swabs at the tip of the nose, you didn't need to involve another healthcare provider, and that it was about as sensitive as the more intrusive tests that we don't have the swabs for. So you were saying that a month ago. Today, you're saying sort of the same thing. You're giving the FDA that information. Are we moving regulatorily fast enough? And if not, like, is there some other process we should be spinning up, given that it's an emergency?
1: No, there's definitely progress, which, given that it wasn't figured out before the crisis, is actually moving at a much higher speed then it would absent a crisis. So the pieces are coming in place to avoid the swab front end being a limiting factor, either for sending the swab in for PCR or taking that swab and using it, dipping it liquid and putting it on a, a strip test that we still don't have those. And we have to be very careful when they come out, are they as sensitive as they need to be? But that's a likely thing to happen in the next couple months.
2: To go to the the next step in innovations, are there medications, antivirals, etc., short of vaccines right now that you think are promising that we could have at a quicker time frame than the vaccines?
1: Absolutely, the a therapeutic. It's easier. You can take a hundred patients, and if your therapeutic is a dramatic benefit, you know, just with the hundred patient baseline, you can see, wow, is this dramatic, either in terms of outcomes or viral loads. And so you can go through a large number and you know it's pretty clear you can go to where there's still sick people and get this done. It's happening. We have studies going on. The UK is doing a good job on this. Germany's doing a good job. So yes, and there are particular compounds, not necessarily the ones that get mentioned, that look very promising. I would say antibodies, where you take of all the recovered patients, yeah, you look in their blood and you find the best antibodies, and then you you either directly use that blood, which is called hyperimmune globin, or you manufacture that antibody. That one is has got a quite a bit of promise, and so we're orchestrating who's got the best antibodies, who has that manufacturing capacity, and trying to get that up and going well before the end of the year.
2: In both of what we just talked about, how much do you think what we are facing here is a need to make the basic innovations? And how much is a limiting factor for things to be very different, let's say six months from now, really going to be manufacturing and supply chain capacity?
1: Well, some of these vaccine constructs are hard to scale up the manufacturing, uh, partly because they're novel or just because there's pieces that the chemistry is very, very complex. And you're in a new regime when you talk about billions of a vaccine. We don't make billions of any vaccine. We make hundreds of millions, but those we've had decades to work on and and get that to be efficient. Even the bottles, the fill finish at the very end where you put it in a glass bottle, that's a special pharmaceutical grade glass. The world doesn't have enough of that. So we're, you know, working to get that underway because all the vaccine approaches need to be put into a bottle, a glass or plastic at at some point in time. Uh, So I hope we get to the point where it's the manufacturing piece, because after all, those investments are at most billions to save trillions. And so, you know, even to help out the countries that can't finance this themselves, I think, you know, certainly Europe has said their interests. And I think in the end of the day, the U.S. will show up and help with these global efforts.
2: So let me ask you a dumb question about vaccines. I see a fair amount of confidence that there will be a vaccine in, let's call it 18 months, And yet there are a lot of viruses, there are, in fact, coronaviruses that we've wanted vaccines for forever. We've not gotten an HIV AIDS vaccine. We have not vaccinated against the common cold, which mutates. How likely is it, you think, that in two years, three billion people have been vaccinated for this effectively?
1: Very likely. Why? This target is not as difficult as HIV. That is, the spike protein isn't changing its shape like it is with HIV. And- For SARS, we actually did get a vaccine, then the disease was gone, so we never did a phase three trial. We have a candidate vaccine. We even have a, for actually Ebola, we have an antiviral. So when these things come and go, it's actually very hard to get them up and going. You know, I don't think the coronavirus will prove to be an impossible target. You know, I can't guarantee it, but you know, when you look at like, even now we're starting to see animal data, and within three months, the phase one data, we can look in the blood and do these, these tighter levels. So by the end of the summer, it will be pretty clear. And I think at least some of the top 10 constructs will look very promising. Even though, you know, vaccinating old people, their immune systems aren't very responsive. And if you amp up the vaccine, you then you worry you're going to have side effects.
2: Tell me a bit about your project to stand up a set of different vaccine manufacturing platforms in advance, knowing that we're not yet sure which kind of facility we're gonna need?
1: Well, CEPI is this group we created to do a lot of this work. And so they've been funding people, we've been directly funding these people. Some of them have this new approach, this RNA approach like Moderna or CureVac or uh, BioNTech. And one has a DNA approach, that's Inovio. So these new approaches have certain advantages but you don't want to totally bet on them because you've never actually made a vaccine that way before. It's too bad, you know, in five to 10 years, we would have used those approaches for a lot of diseases and know more about them and have generic manufacturing capacity. So if you look at the risk level, it's probably the more classic Novavax, Johnson & Johnson, GSK Sanofi, you know, subunit vaccines, even though they get started a little bit later, understanding the the mechanisms and the manufacturing is straightforward for those. So anyway, you know, picking of the 100 efforts out there, the ones to really get behind, that kind of expertise, there isn't much of it in the world. Most of it's in the private sector. Fortunately, some is at CEPI, some is in the Gates Foundation. So we can play a fair broker and take those billions that are available for tools for the world and make sure they go to the right place. But
2: to talk a little bit about how these are, are manufactured, why don't we start here? Could you just talk a little bit about some of these new approaches and what makes them different and what could make them better?
1: Usually what you do is you put a shape of the virus in and then the immune system sees that and then decides, okay, that's a really foreign thing. I should be ready immediately if I ever see this again to make antibodies. And so usually you're injecting at least part of the shape of the virus. Sometimes you do the whole virus but it's attenuated so it doesn't multiply too much. That's like measles. Sometimes you take the virus and you kill it and stick it in. That's like uh, inactivated polio virus. Most of the new vaccines are these subunit vaccines where you don't put the whole virus in. You just put a little piece of it that you think is particularly like the spike protein in the case of coronavirus. With RNA and DNA, instead of putting that shape in, what you do is you put in the code, the instructions to make that shape. So what you have to manufacture is just RNA, which, you know, changing that is trivial because it's, it's just these known codons that you, you string together. You know, that's a, a promising approach that these new companies are taking that probably, if it works, will be the platform for quick response uh, in future pandemics. If we've been
2: heavily investing in vaccine production capacity over the past five or 10 years, do you think we'd be in a a significantly different place today?
1: Oh, absolutely. We'd be able to do this in a year instead of, you know, if we got super, super, super lucky, that's what it will be this time. But in that case, we would have been even quicker. So now the number of things that you have to practice to understand, okay, who should step up and, you know. Now the decisions about okay, where do we pool this money and who decides and how are the regulators going to make the trade-off of, of getting it out quickly versus looking having a big safety database? You know, it's all so unknown. And you know, there's a per country instinct and there's a political instinct of you know, people who want to Look good or not look bad. So the crisis is a tough time to think through all the pieces that are necessary. You know, it's nice to have not have that breathing down on you as you you make these scientific decisions. And okay, here we are. you know, we can get money out really fast. We can do evaluations of these things without you know people thinking we have a, a profit motive in doing it, you know so. You know, now we're all trying to step up and look all over the world for the best ideas.
2: Are there regulatory approaches we could do that would make this move much faster? I mean, people talk about, say, human challenge trials. Does any of that seem plausible to you?
1: It's up to regulators to decide. You know, mostly when you have serious disease like this, it's unethical to use human challenge trials. So I don't think that will be used here. On paper, yes, that gives you a quicker way to see if your vaccine is effective. So you could shorten the schedule, but you know, who are those volunteers? Are they fully informed? You know, for malaria, that's allowed because we have drugs that are entirely curative. But for TB, HIV, it's not allowed. And unless there was some breakthrough innovation, that it's not really the real disease itself, it shouldn't be allowed.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before.
3: borough.com slash box.
2: So right now in the U S we have not built the testing and contact tracing structure or innovations, much less the secondary um, therapeutic or vaccine innovations. And yet a number of States are moving towards reopening. How worried are you about significant second spike problems?
1: I'm, you know, super worried about it because unless they're very tasteful and gradual and pick the things that we know don't raise the force of infection back up over one, then you're going to have this heterogeneity where part of the US will you know, be doing well and other parts will be doing poorly and the temptation to interdict travel between those parts will be very difficult. And without the testing, it's really a blind thing. You know, so I hate to be a broken record in terms of you know, my greatest shock of, hey, CDC, you know, it's disease control. Where's the testing prioritization? You know, aren't your bosses demanding that you put up the website that prioritize who should get tested and gets those answers quickly? You know, without that, it's very strange to be diving into it. And, you know, for most places, we, you know, in late May, early June, maybe we'll have the case numbers down. So, you know, if you use that time to to fix the testing, get the contact tracing going, then yes, opening up will make sense. And that shouldn't be you know, some political thing. It should be a scientific thing.
2: You've mentioned a couple of times the problem of testing prioritization, which I think is a, a, an issue people are less familiar with and we just don't have the tests. You wanna talk about what it should be
1: versus what it is. And for people who can't see, you just had the most rueful smile on your face. <laughs> some people have access to testing who have no symptoms. And some people with symptoms have no access to testing. And so a substantial percentage of the testing is not helpful. And other countries do prioritization. It's almost corrupt in the sense that if you have a close relationship with your doctor in a hospital, you'll get onto their PCR machine no matter what your circumstances are. And if you don't have that type of connection, even if you're a healthcare worker, you can get, you know, tests back five days later. So why people aren't outraged about this, it's it's a hard one to understand. And
2: when you talk about that, the reason you want to be able to do that testing fast and particularly for some kinds of workers is because it allows you to keep healthcare workers in the game. It allows you to keep essential workers out there without that kind of spread. So it keeps that super spreader problem from happening.
1: Yeah, the PCR test is quite sensitive. And so it can it can catch you before you have infected other people. And it's telling you what's going on out there. And so you can change policies, change behavior. You know, an individual who tests positive, they're the most likely to do great isolation. And they're the one you're going to go interview to ask about their contacts. So you can also catch the people who were exposed to them and make sure that they also hear early enough that they don't Further grow the level of infection, and this this is classic epidemiology. You know, the CDC is you know the best in the world in this, and we need that to guide us as we move away from the total lockdown into what I call the semi-normal period.
2: On the contact tracing point, you're a technologist. What do you think about these ideas to do massive scale digital surveillance using phones and Bluetooth or even using them for digital to enforce quarantine using digital information?
1: Yeah, it's complex to characterize those. Some are more like a memory aid to remind you where you've been. So when you get called up for that interview, you can think through, okay, I did go to that shop and that shop. That's, that can be helpful. If you just use Bluetooth, the distance is too large. So the false positives will be overwhelming that, you know, those are people at a distance and, you know, it'd be hundreds per person in many cases. Some people are going further and taking and doing an ultrasonic sound to see which phones are, are nearby. But even that's not perfect because a lot of the infection is where somebody's in a place, leaves a virus particle on a surface, they leave with their phone somebody else comes up to, say, an hour or two later and touches that virus and, unfortunately, you know, with their hands and eventually gets it so they get infected. You know, there's no telephone proximity there. That's an intersection of uh, GPS track. But the Germany approach, which does require manpower, can work very, very well. And, you know, as long as that database is managed properly, it doesn't you know, jam the, the privacy issue quite the way that some of the Asian uh, approaches do.
2: So in 2015, we had this conversation that people can watch on YouTube, where I asked you what you're afraid of. And you told me a lethal pandemic respiratory flu. So we're living through that nightmare now. So let me ask you the reverse of it. I'm thinking three or five years into the future beyond just a vaccine. What are you hopeful for? What do you hope for?
1: Well, I hope that this draws the world together. I mean, after World War II, we created new institutions and we successfully avoided having another world war. You know, that's a phenomenal thing. We haven't, you know, blown off a a nuclear weapon as, as part of a conflict. And we did that by binding ourselves together through a variety of institutions that you know, focused, including WHO on health and a variety of things. So, the you know, the outcome, as bad as that was, the outcome was positive. Here, this is a tragic event. Whatever good comes out of this will in no way make up for the problems that it causes, but it should say to us, okay, this science is important. Let's use it to avoid pandemics and for other things. It should say, okay, drawing people in, you know, for these digital approaches, you know, that's an important, thing so let's accelerate that and you know we're not going to be out of this until you know we get rid of it from the entire world you know interdicting travel is a very brute force thing that you know has lots of negative effects and even if we have to do that temporarily it's not you know where we want to be so Everybody brings to the epidemic their hopes that maybe they had before, and I've always believed in global cooperation. So you can accuse me here of, you know, just taking and saying, okay, this is gonna help the thing. You know, everybody's gonna be convinced of, you know, some tax I believe in, or some policy they believe in, or, you know, now that, you know, money seems infinitely available from governments, okay, let's fund, you know, my thing. But I really do believe that the World War II analogy applies here.
2: But, but there's a darker version of that too, which is that one way of looking at this is it shows how interconnected we are. And another way is, it lo- is people take the lesson that we're too interconnected, that our borders are too open, there's too much immigration. You've already seen in, in this country, Donald Trump trying to shut down green cards. Do you worry about this leading to a pulling back from global cooperation in an era of suspicion and and in particular blame, right? The constant effort of national governments to blame cases coming in from the outside on the outside?
1: Well, in the case of World War II, you know, we know that Germany and Japan had something to do with <laughs> causing the war. So, you know, in that case, it wasn't just some bat somewhere that some guy ate. And yet- you know, what became the number two and number three economies in the world that, you know, when you travel to Japan, you know, no one's ever come up to me and saying, hey, you nuked our country. Or it was amazing that you could have said it will permanently, you know, have attitudes towards people from Japan or Germany, which, you know, during the war, of course, that was super intense. And, you know, we did some things that, that we regretted because of that. But in fact, That's gone. I mean, my dad was part of the occupation in Japan. He couldn't believe how friendly and cooperative they were. So, you know, very quickly, we helped them build up. They did build up. The sense of mutual benefit was very, very strong there through those institutions. So, you know, that human ability to take a much worse situation and craft it into the institutions and, and the economic growth and innovation that we've had between World War II and now I hope that this looks like that.
2: I I like that comparison. You had a lovely line, and I'm sorry because I'm doing this from memory here in the beginning of your essay where you said, this is like a world war, but we're all on the same side. And what is striking to me about the not the aftermath of this the, the the period of it we're in is the effort to create sides the effort in America to increase um, tensions with China to increase blame towards China to get the UN to call it the Wuhan virus China has to some degree responded in kind. It is striking that this is something where obviously there needs to be not just public health but ultimately economic cooperation to get out of it, and yet there are to put it gently local political incentives and leaders who see a sort of short term gain. In the kind of enmity that's going to make it harder for them to get their countries out of the problem?
1: Well, I do think in the end, the US will show up in a strong way, even though it certainly hasn't to date. You could even call its response somewhat disruptive. The US Congress that allocates resources has been the most generous on HIV funding for the entire world. You know, it started under a Republican administration, it's been one of the most generous to Gavi in terms of funding vaccines. You know, the U.S. government has helped the health of the entire world, been a huge part of the uh, reduction in death. And I don't see a change in the U.S. Congress in saying, hey, in this case, not only is it humanitarian, it's about strategic relationships. And it's about making sure the disease isn't coming back into the U.S. as we participate in global commerce that we benefit immensely from. And so I do think what you're seeing in this short term in terms of how the U.S. is engaging, it's not where we'll end up. There are many voices that are going to push us to work with Europe and work with other countries and be part of the innovations that will bring this to an end.
2: One thing that has been a a discreet effort on funding is, is the U.S. has talked about pulling back from funding the World Health Organization you've talked a little bit about this publicly. For people who I think to some degree rightfully are disappointed in parts of the WHO's response, how should they think about the World Health Organization and why would it be important going forward to continue funding it?
1: The World Health Organization is what helps all the countries understand what's going on with epidemics. They have a very small budget. I mean, in movies, they show, you know, guys flying around and, you know, knocking out bioterrorism. They have no budget for that. Their budget is less than a thousandth of what one country the US spends on on healthcare. And so people who imagine okay they should have made a vaccine, that's not their role at all. They're just not funded to do it. Here they've done, you know, a lot of good things. They're a necessary institution. And so, you know, it's like saying, "Hey, there's a big fire. You know, the fire department was, you know, 20 minutes late. Let's fire all the firemen." I mean, yes, we should do a postmortem and there'll become time to do a postmortem. And there's not a lot of people saying this, that, you know, many people didn't respond as quickly as they should. You know, this is not the time to try to start shifting blame on other people. Uh, At the end of the day, I don't think the US will reduce its contributions and fire lots of people from WHO in the middle of a crisis like this. There are many political voices in this country that are thinking, okay, you know, how do we work with others? How do we solve this problem? And so I think that will blow over, at least that's my hope.
2: Let's say the lesson you take from this is that the things you fear as 5 or 10% tail risk chances really do come true, right? When people like you and others were talking about pandemics a couple of years ago, I think a lot of people said, yes, that's clearly a threat, but it's not the thing I can think about tomorrow. And so if you take that approach, what are the other ones out there? What are the other things that if we want to be careful for the 1 in 20 probabilities we need to be preparing for now?
1: Well... You know, things are tough enough. I don't want to dwell (laughs) on bioterrorism. But whatever the fatality rate of this thing is, it's not anywhere near a bioterrorism smallpox or other pathogen that was intentionally picked for a high fatality rate, as well as delayed symptoms and and a high infectious rate. Fortunately, what we need to do to be ready for naturally-caused pandemic-2 is a subset of what we need to do to be ready for a bioterrorism-induced pandemic, too.
3: Support for The Gray Area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Eurovision is here.
2: This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organisers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry
1: breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there is no way that, that Israel should be able to participate. in Europe.
3: Pro-Palestinian
2: protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched on Pop joins us this week
3: on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this
2: situation. How much do you think about the way the globe actually thinks about raising animals and industrial animal production? This potentially seems to have come from wet markets in China. There's been a lot of concern about confined animal feeding operations in other countries. Um, The UN talked about the way we deal with animals as a weak link in the global
1: public health chain. Like, do we need to rethink that approach? You're not going to ever drive zoonoses, that is, diseases that cross species barriers to zero. As long as you have animals and as long as you have humans, this will be a risk and we can prepare for that risk. You can reduce the risk a little bit by having fewer wet markets, you know, less bushmeat. It's very hard to regulate, you know, in the rural areas of sub-Saharan Africa, which, if you had to say where's the next one likely to come from, that would be it because you have this, you know, through bushmeat, a human species overlap there that's very, very dangerous. This one came from a somewhat unexpected source. And yes, we'll have less wet markets, but that's not really going to mean that we can ignore the threat here.
2: How do you think about trying to sustain, not just in America where I think there at least is the money if there is the political will, but sustain the economies and livelihoods of people in Sub-Saharan Africa, in South America. You have very big informal sectors. You're not gonna have sort of a Denmark style plan to guarantee 80% of paychecks in order to do some of the things that the public health authorities will need to do here if there's going to be an okay outcome you're going to somehow need to be able to support these folks is there anything that you see coming that could be equal to the scale of that need
1: no other than accelerating getting the vaccine out there and getting the therapeutics out there the developing country problem you know will will lead to deaths and malnutrition and not just from coronavirus but from all sorts of things because the interruption in their activities will will be incredible. So, you know, we need to get going on those things. Therapeutically, it turns out the ventilator, at least the way it's being used, isn't saving many lives. So in terms of what's practical, getting oxygen in places where you can isolate, you know, we're funding some early things like in various countries where you build up and you have oxygen. Most of the recovery benefit, if you have oxygen plus CPAP, seems to be there. But that's all pragmatic stuff. And dealing with triage only, you know, modestly reduces what will happen if they can't get the reproductive rate below one, which many locations, unless there's some magic factor we don't understand, they're unlikely to do so.
2: Do you think there's any different trade-off that should be made between social distancing and keeping economies going in those countries um, than in the richer countries?
1: Absolutely. If you push so hard that people don't have access to food, you're just going to create civil unrest. And that's the opposite of, of social distancing. That in these developing countries you know, where nuanced policies are much harder to implement because you're you know capacity is is just lower you know i i think we need a lot of innovation to make policies that are appropriate for developing countries and right now they're largely trying to do what worked in richer countries
2: I want to ask you about experience you've been having that is more distinct which is there's been a rise in conspiracy theories that because you were predicting the something like coronavirus perhaps you created it to profit off of it or use a vaccine to to control people so i guess why did you create the coronavirus and what is it like to be at the center of that kind of conspiracy theory?
1: Well, you know, I say, hey, you know, for five years I predicted it and then I was wrong for five years. So what what could I do? It's not a funny topic, so I probably shouldn't joke around. You know, it's kind of sad the crazy things that go around. You know, who would have thought that, you know, Lysol has to remind people not to inject? disinfected in their body. You know, some people actually act on these things, you know, and so if you have hate, some people attack the people who are talked about there. Some people, if you have rumors that something's a miraculous drug, people use that in the wrong way. So misinformation is pretty dangerous stuff, particularly in this type of crisis where people's willingness to believe wild things, I think, is heightened. Who should we blame? People want to, you know, we're all in a very tough situation, me less than others, but broadly. And, you know, so thinking, okay, hey, you know, somebody said we should take this country and blame them or, you know, this person, you know, who's different than us and, uh, you know, we should blame them. That is dangerous stuff. And so I'm sorry to see that getting going. I don't think it's that widespread, but I hope it will die out.
2: We've talked a lot in this conversation about the technologies we need, but something that has struck me throughout this entire uh Calamity is just how much any effective response relies on social trust and solidarity. And we seem to be in a moment in terms of the technological platforms we use to communicate, in terms of where our politics are, where mistrust is easier than trust, where our ability to kind of break down the trust people have in institutions and others seems uh, swifter than our ability to to raise it, even in experts. Now, there has been a pretty good response in many places, so people are listening to scientists, but I'm just curious if you have any reflections, having watched a lot of this, on the need and and the modes that actually build trust, given the work you've done in developing countries where there has been mistrust of um, outside authorities, of, of public health authorities, vaccine operations, and others?
1: Well, broadly, if you look at trust figures for most politicians, they're up pretty dramatically. And, you know, where the politicians are willing to admit what they don't know and, you know, show that they're trying to do their best in this way of bringing in experts. You know, I think it's great that the trust level's up and the compliance on the social distancing has been very high. Now, over time, you know, people's patients will wear thin, particularly if they're getting a confusing message from their leadership. But overall, you'd have to feel pretty good about the attitude in the country. You know, if you'd said to me, we were going to shut all this stuff down, I'd go, wow, you know, there'd be more of a backlash. But people understand about human death and survival. Most of the questions that are being asked are very fair questions. You know, sadly, the Topics are complex enough to, that getting across what we know, what we don't know, it's fairly hard. You know, that's why I made the effort to write the memo. And, you know, a month or two from now, I'll know more. Maybe I'll, I'll write again.
2: I think that's a good note of optimism to end on. So let me ask you what we always do at the end, which is what are three books you would recommend around all this? You've done so much reading on infections and pandemics. What informs your thinking that you think other people could get some context from?
1: The Spanish flu, uh, the history of that you know, I'll put a book on my uh, website about that. Actually, I read it quite some time ago, but I think it's good. You know, there's a Netflix series about epidemics, you know, going back and watching Contagion. Yes, they always manage to have a happy ending that it's hard to explain how it happened. But, uh, you know, those were made to get people to think ahead. And, you know, often, you know, fictional scripts are part of how we at least mentally realize, okay, let's Let's take this seriously. I have to admit, I actually, I read so much during the day that I more, when I do get time at night, I'm, I'm uh, watching video sort of as a, you know, an hour or two of relaxation at the end of the day. So I'm reading less books the last four weeks than any time in the, the last 20 years. I, I hope that the intensity goes down. We're making enough progress. I can get back to, to doing that.
2: Has there been anything that you've watched to escape that you would recommend?
1: I would not recommend Tiger King, but, you know, one of my children wanted me to endure that with her. You know, I watched, uh, you know, there's a Hillary Clinton documentary. There's Ozark season three. That's very escapist in nature. You know, a lot of good stuff out there that sort of refreshes me for the next day of, of uh, heavy science and scary numbers. Bill
2: Gates, thank you very much. Thank you. That's the conversation. Thank you to Bill Gates for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. I hope you're staying safe out there. Thank you to Raja Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show as a Vox Media podcast production.